I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judea, of Judah, or the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Monty's going to unpack that for us um, shortly. Uh, but before he does that, we're going to sing together. And we're going to sing Strength Will Rise as we wait upon the Lord. Well, uh, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you'll know that we've been looking at the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. We've looked at love and joy, but probably for the first time in my life, my recuperation from my operation meant that I was well organized. And because I was traveling over the last couple of weeks, I decided to get my sermon on patience sorted out. Then the schedule shifted a week, and I discovered that I was down to do peace. Stephen and Christoph have kindly let us do the fruit of the Spirit out of sequence. So thank you for that. And as Colin said, if you came here expecting a sermon on peace, you'll just have to be patient. So, I've been in this work long enough to know that when I prepare a passage to preach, it turns out more often than not in God's timing that I end up preaching to myself as well. There's something here that God specifically wants to teach me. And this was no less true this time. Over a few weeks, especially as I waited for my hip to recover, and I had to rely on Gwen and others to do some simple tasks that I could no longer do. I was well schooled in patience. A couple of weeks ago, if you'd spoken to me uh, and said, you know, how are you going spiritually, Monte? I would have said, well, lots of room for improvement as always. But you know at least one thing, I think I've learned the patience thing. That's one box I can tick until I had to go through security at Heathrow Airport Terminal 5. It's one of those ones, you know, where you have the four stations and you bring four people forward at once, and I happened to be at the one closest to the, to the scanner. Uh, and I had all my stuff ready. I was well prepared. I don't like holding people up. I had all my computer out and had my liquids out and all of that there. But there was a hold-up. And there seemed to be a blockage. They were looking at something in the scanner, and I looked, and in front of me, where my case was meant to go, in front of me was a massive tray, one of those massive trays, and I'm not exaggerating, the only thing in it was this. And if you can't see it, that proves the point. It's a pair of earphones. 
That was the only thing in this tray. So I started looking around and getting a little bit, org- little bit uh, annoyed. I started thinking, you know, how badly organized this was. I even went to the stage of thinking, you know, if Gwen was organizing this, it would be far better. Uh, and eventually I decided I would do everybody else a service by moving on, and I picked up the earphones, put them in another tray in front, and then just put my stuff onto the conveyor belt and walked away. And then suddenly there was this, excuse me, sir, and I went back. And he said, uh, what's happened to the earphones that were in the tray here? And I made the fatal mistake of trying to reason with him. Don't ever try to reason with an airport security guy. I tried to debate with him. I said, well, it was only a pair of earphones, and they were holding everybody else up. I was doing a service to everybody else behind me. I was moving things along. Sir, you do not touch other people's possessions. I said, I know that. Uh, Where are they? They're just in that tray there. And he takes them back, he moves my stuff out, he puts them back in the tray. And eventually the scanner moves on, and he says to the person in in station number two, you now, sir. And then he said to the person in station number three, you now, ma'am. And then to the person number four, you now, sir. He left me standing there while everybody else went through. And I sheepishly, sheepishly stood there, rather embarrassed, Remembering my sermon preparation, trying to take this pettiness and good grace, all the while thinking, is it too late to prepare a sermon on peace? (laughs) And yes, this next core characteristic of the Christian, this fruit of the Spirit that we want to look at this morning is patience. What I want to do this morning is really in two parts. For for most of the time, I want to actually trace how patience is a key theme in the Bible for the people of God. It's made, it appears at major points of the biblical story. And then at the end, spend a little time thinking of God's patience with us. Now, I'm not going to have time to tell all the stories, but hopefully most of them will be familiar, and if not, I try to put them in context as best I can. The whole of the biblical story can be summarized in the term of waiting. Waiting for a land. Waiting for a king. Waiting to go home from exile. Waiting for a Messiah. And now we as the church, waiting, living in expectation, patiently, for the return of the Lord. But alongside this, we have to live full and fulfilling lives. So how do we do this? Well, as we look at some of the biblical headliners, I don't think there can be any doubt that they all lived very full lives, even in the midst of their waiting. Take Abraham, for instance. Abraham, I believe, had to trust in God's methods more than his own desires. Trusting in God's methods more than our own desires. God's plan was to choose and work through a people of his own. He calls Abraham to get up and to leave, and Abraham gets up and goes, even though he doesn't know when or where God's promises will be fulfilled. God promises him a land and a nation. And so Abraham gets up, and he leaves, and he goes, and he waits. At the end of his life, what does he have? He has one son, and a measly field. 
That's all. At steps along the way, he could have jockeyed God on a little bit. He could have tried to do God's job for him, but no. He was faced with a choice of land. He lets Lot choose the best land, and he goes the other way. He could have accepted gifts from the king of Sodom and become a wealthy prince himself. Surely that would have been God's provision. <coughs> but Abraham says no. He had learned the discipline of waiting for God's time, trusting in God's method more than his own desires. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. When I was just starting my ministry, there was the opportunity for us to stay in Canada and work for a church there. We had a choice to make. I could come back and be an assistant in Northern Ireland, or I could join a university church team in Vancouver. The trouble was I knew all about the advantages about the Vancouver option. I had no idea where I would end up in Belfast. So I decided to hurry God along a little bit. I did a little digging, a little of personal investigation. I tried to phone key people back in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland to see if they could tell me where I was going to be placed. And then, of course, I could make an informed decision. Isn't that okay? If only I knew where I was going. But in spite of several attempts, I could get no answer on the phone. Frustrated, I went back to marking some Old Testament papers from first-year students. Not my idea of a good way to spend a Friday afternoon. But the next paper I read, immediately after trying those phone calls and being frustrated, the first paper I read the student wrote this. Abraham could have asked God more questions. He could have wanted more information. He could have demanded more guarantees. But no, he had to learn what it was to trust. And so he got up and left the country even though he didn't know where he was going. Well, they got an A+. Being prepared to wait trusting God's methods more than our own desires. What would that mean for us this morning? Later in the story, we encounter Joseph, of course. Joseph, who trusted in God's purposes more than his own vindication. Sold into slavery, falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned, decades waiting in misery for his dreams to come true, all stemming from the jealousy of his brothers. And at the end of his life, when after years of waiting, things did turn out well, Joseph is faced with his brothers. He could take revenge. He could throw them in prison. He could let them live on a small farm somewhere remote while he swanned around in the palace. And he could smugly say, I told you so. My dreams were right. But he, instead, he says at the end of his life, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. He embraces them. He rewards them. They're reconciled. He didn't have to vindicate himself. God had done that for him. He just had to wait. In fact, it was his integrity that had got him into trouble in the first place. Maybe it would have been easier in the short term to sleep with Potiphar's wife. Maybe he could have bribed his way out of prison just so that he could see God's promises being fulfilled. Maybe God just needed a helping hand. But no, he didn't need a helping hand. Joseph waited. We don't need 
to do God's job for him. We don't need to vindicate ourselves. God will do that in his time. Then we come to David, who had to be patient all his young life, not taking the opportunities to kill Saul and become king, but waiting for God to establish him as king. And now here he is in his palace and deciding it would be good to build a big, impressive temple for God. Except God says no. The Lord himself will establish a house for you. Building my temple, David, is not your job. Maybe it would have turned into too much of an ego trip for him. And God says, instead of you building a house for me, let me build a house for you, a dynasty. And let your son build the temple. Be patient. Your motivations may be sincere enough, but it's not what I want from you. Times when we want to do something good for God. Maybe we want to do something big for God, but He's more interested in doing something amazing in us. Some of you may know that six or seven years ago, we felt led to a certain ministry, and we were quite devastated when it didn't work out. We couldn't think why. I had all sorts of ambitions and plans for this place, and how the ministry could develop and be fruitful. I wanted to build something for God there. And it seemed that my plans were being thwarted for no good reason. One friend who had been through something similar said to me, be patient. It will take you two years to process this. Another came out with the God has something better for you line, neither of which I particularly wanted to hear at that time but both were right. God is more interested in building something permanent within us than whatever we might do or build for Him. And then do you remember Elijah? 1 Kings 18 is the high point of Elijah's life. It's his World Cup final, if you like. Mount Carmel, defeat of the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings 18. What's 1 Kings 19 about? His comfortable retirement, peace and prosperity? No. It's actually worse than before. And Elijah goes and sulks under his desert broom tree, and he wonders, what on earth is all of this about? I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So, do we sometimes think it's just about us, what we can achieve for God? And then when things don't work out, we think, what's it all been for? When is your kingdom coming? Elijah sinks into a hellish depression. And through that story where God gently nourishes him, meets with him, lets him talk, reveals himself to him in a new way, and then commissions him to a new task, you can read it in 1 Kings 19, Elijah learns to trust in God's sovereignty rather than his own emotions. The saturation of bad news on the mainstream media, supplemented by social media, on top of all the things we may be struggling with as individuals, it means it's no surprise 
that many of us can sink into despair or even depression. The world, of course, is no worse than ever it was. It's just that we hear about it all the time now. How long, O oh Lord? How long? It's a fruit of God's Spirit to quietly trust enough to know that our emotions, although they're real to us, are not the full story. It's as if like we're only watching one TV channel, and God's purposes are being worked out on the other side. If we read the book of Revelation, that's what's happening. John sees the horror and the tribulation on earth, but then God switches channels and shows him how it really is. Who's in charge? Trusting God's sovereignty more than our own emotions. And then towards the end of the Old Testament, there's the story of Esther, who learned to trust in God's salvation more than her own circumstances. She finds herself in the Persian palace in the harem as a young Jewess. Her people are faced with extermination. And then she's confronted by her uncle who says this to her. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther says, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It seemed impossible for Esther to envisage how she, a lone, powerless, female voice in a patriarchal, absolutist dictatorship, could have any influence on the political intrigue that was going on. But God had a plan of salvation. And it wasn't just that Esther's circumstances wouldn't thwart that plan, but it was rather that Esther's circumstances were actually part of the plan. It's not always that our circumstances can't thwart God's plan, but it may be that our circumstances can be seen as actually part of God's plan, particularly in what He's doing in and through us. In all of these cases, the key people spent much of their life and ministry waiting, <clears throat> wandering like Abraham, imprisoned like Joseph, a desert warrior like David, hiding in caves like Elijah, lost in a harem like Esther. For what? To play their part in God's story. It was, of course, the Apostle Paul who wrote the words that we're looking at in this series, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. It was he who knew all about that, speaking often of his own pain and his own suffering, his thorn in the flesh, his chains. And yet he learned to trust God's ultimate plan more than his own pain. And in Romans 8, he wrote how it was important to hope for what we do not yet have and wait for it patiently. Why? Why is it so hard? Why can a Christian life not be easier? Well, if, as will come out in this series, the role of the Holy Spirit is to make us more Christ-like, for the character of God to be shaped within us, 
for us to love like God loves, to know joy like He knows joy, then patience is a core characteristic of the Christian because it's an inherent characteristic of God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why I had Colin read from that passage in Isaiah chapter 5. Basically summarizes the story of God's patience. You see there in verse 2 a God who does all that He can. Isaiah 5 is actually written in the form of a marriage song. So undergirding it all is the love, the, the poignant, unrequited love of the lover. We see God's provision, if you read through the verses, His care, His commitment, digging, clearing, planting, building, fencing, protecting, doing all that He can to make it easy for fruit to appear. Folks, if we're struggling already in this series about how little of the fruit we can seem to exhibit in our own lives, let's remember that He has done the work. Looking at this side of Calvary in a way that even Isaiah and his people couldn't imagine, we see that God has done even more than is outlined in Isaiah 5. He has come in the flesh. He has died. He has risen. He has given us His Spirit. He has done the work. As he says in verse 4, what more could I have done? And in contrast to a God who's done all that He can, we see a people who repaid generosity with rebellion. In verse 4, it says that only bad fruit, literally in the Hebrew, it's stink fruit, stink fruit appeared. In verse 7, violence and distress. Again, in, in the Hebrew, there's a rhyme there. It's as if he said, God looked for right and got a riot. God looked for decency and got despair. What is all of this to do with Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit? Well, Christ himself uses the image of the vine, doesn't he, in John's gospel? The people of Israel failed as the vine. They produced stink fruit. Now Jesus says, I am the true vine. Remain in me. And the stinking fruit will be transformed into spirit fruit. The stinking fruit will be transformed into spirit fruit. <coughs> if you turn on to Galatians 5 again, you will see how the fruit of the Spirit appear just after another list, what are termed the works of the flesh, the opposites, if you like. Now, they're not direct opposites, but I think there's probably more connection than we might think, and I've listed them here in two columns. Now, some are obvious connections, impurity and sexual immorality instead of love, drunkenness and orgies instead of self-control, hatred and discord instead of peace, etc. Some are maybe less obvious, although I think with a little bit of looking at the, at the words used and the context, we could probably make a case for them all. And if you look at that, you will see that the parallel to patience is fits of rage. That's pretty accurate, I think, to me, isn't it? How often do we rage? It's not just anger. We can be angry about a lot of things, whether it's justifiably or unjustifiably. But raging 
is usually an irrational explosion because things haven't gone our way. We've had no patience. Have you ever noticed how the fruit of the Spirit can only manifest itself precisely when circumstances are against us? How can we be sure we are loving if there are no difficult people to love? How do we know we are truly joyful if there is nothing to grieve over? Similarly, how can the fruit of patience be cultivated in us if everything goes our way and we have everything that we want? It is the very difficulties of the Christian life, the same adverse circumstances and challenges and trials that can overwhelm us, that are at the self-same time the soil for the fruit of the Spirit to grow. The very circumstances that threaten to overwhelm us are at the self-same time the very soil in which the fruit of the Spirit can grow. And don't forget they are the fruit of the Spirit. We can't exhibit these naturally, but He has given us the resources. And so as God has been patient with us, we can start being ruled by grace rather than hurt. God was hurt by our rebellion, yet He responded by grace, showing us the way we are to respond with our hurt. And it means, too, as God has been patient with us, we can seek the welfare of others rather than our own convenience. In Romans 8, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? For Jesus, the incarnation, the years on earth, the rejection, the crucifixion were not convenient. They were acts of selfless sacrifice out of love for us. And so much of our impatience is about our own convenience. The Spirit enables us to look beyond ourselves to the other, to try to understand the other person's circumstances. We don't know what sort of day they have been having. And finally, we can pursue, because God has been patient with us, we can pursue a greater vision than our own satisfaction. Impatience is always tied up with our wants, our desires, and they can be so mixed, can't they? The patience of the Spirit pursues a greater vision. Think back to those Old Testament characters and God's methods, purposes, timing, sovereignty, salvation. That's what we focus our eyes on. His methods, purposes, timing, sovereignty, salvation. That's what will help us give perspective to our trials, our sicknesses, our fears and anxieties, our spiritual doubts. That's what will enable us to be patient with our prodigal children, our difficult parents, our infuriating bosses, with petty bureaucracies and things that only seem to exist to make our life more difficult. 
even at airports. Because instead, we will have changed channels and we will have seen the bigger picture. Scotty Smith is an American Presbyterian pastor, a wonderful author. I've had the privilege of using him with some of our student events. And he writes daily prayers, and I'm on his list in getting these prayers. And there was one a couple of months ago that was quite powerful, and I thought it fitted well with this theme this morning. So I'm just going to put it up and read it as he has uh, sent it. He writes this, Heavenly Father, thank you for confronting us with, your, with our less than gracious attitudes. May the lush fruit of your Spirit trump the spoiled fruit of my flesh. Reveal to me the contexts in which I can be short-fused. When I'm in my car and in a hurry, Father, forgive me for committing heart homicide towards slow-driving, smartphone-talking, rubber-necking drivers. I get irritated and think and say things that neither honor you nor get me to my destination sooner. I can either leave earlier or trust that you are sovereign or both. When pundits and politicians engage in mean-spirited diatribe rather than solution-seeking dialogue, when the public forum becomes a place for toxic rancor rather than mutual respect, Father, convict me quickly when I murder these graceless ways even when critiquing them. When promised delivery times and appointments aren't kept and flights are delayed and deadlines are missed, it's one thing to be appropriately disappointed, but another to vex, seethe, and have a bad attitude. Father, by your grace, slay the beast of the idol of control that rears its ugly head in my heart too often. When people make choices that inconvenience me or complicate my life, Father, just writing these things out convicts me about my self-centeredness. I've got a way bigger gospel than I've been drawing upon and demonstrating. Forgive me. Thank you for the convicting work of your Spirit and the consoling and transforming power of your grace. Amen. On Friday, I was down in Sligo doing a seminar at the New Wine Conference, and I was sitting waiting, appropriately enough, for things to start, and I was just in the foyer. Nobody else was around, and I noticed a bit of paper on the sofa area where I was waiting. Somebody had just left it there, maybe left it behind, maybe they'd been given it, maybe it was a craft that they were doing, I don't know, but it suddenly found itself on the sofa beside me. And I'd been going over my head some of the, this morning's sermon as I was waiting. And I looked and I thought, well, that's probably appropriate enough to share. So I leave it with you, sitting there on the uh, sofa in Sligo. God's timing is always right. No matter what we think, no matter what we feel, let's believe that. Amen.